0: After today, we're going to be taking a break from Revelation for the summer months. So, if you're, if you're finding your endurance stretched to the limit, you're going to get a break. The people have spoken and I am suspending my campaign. <laughs> uh, but today, our text is Revelation chapter 12. Verses 13 through 17. Um, at the end of uh, last week's text, just, just prior to where we're going to pick up this morning, we saw that the, the, the ancient serpent, the accuser, had been disbarred. He was thrown down from heaven in the, lang- the apocalyptic language of Revelation. And a woe was pronounced on the earth. Because his defeat means that he comes down in great wrath. And so the situation on earth is turbulent. And the church, which had fled into the wilderness, stands as a permanent and provocative reminder of his defeat. So there's a kind of basic architecture to the world that Christians have that is Lost on moderns, they reject it. They consider it pre-scientific. We believe that there's there's a church, there's a people of God in the earth, and that there are an arrayed set of supernatural forces that seek her destruction. In other words, we believe the situation is one where there is warfare going on, spiritual warfare. So, the intensification of the wrath here, which is described, is a sign of the evil one already being conquered. Right? He's thrown down from heaven and his wrath increases against the people of God. Another way of saying this, and we've been saying this throughout the series, is revelation is a way of narrating the world. Everyone has a way of narrating the world. Everyone sees the world a certain way, tells a story. right? And so John is trying to get us to see the story this way. And part of the story is that all hell breaks loose because all heaven has broken loose. Remember, we saw this repeatedly. It's because Christ has ascended. It's because Christ has appeared, right, that these forces then seek to destroy the church. So we'll look at this text today under three headings. The wilderness, they're there in your bulletin. The wilderness, the flood, and the offspring. First one is the wilderness. So Revelation 12, verse 13 And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown or hurled down to earth. This means he's been disbarred from the heavenly court. We we talked about that last week. He pursued or he persecuted. the, The word here means both. He pursued and persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. So the male child, Christ, the church, which is his body. Those are the roots of the the rage, the current rage, of demonic powers. This rage, of course, expresses itself through political, um, often through political principalities and powers. That's why the relationship and revelation between the dragon and the Roman beast, the Roman Empire, is so close. So this particular passage, and we've seen this a couple other places, is very rich. It's resonant with themes from the Exodus, Here in uh, in verse 13, the pursuit of the woman by the dragon is drawing on the pursuit of Israel by Pharaoh as she fled into the wilderness. Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, is depicted in the Old Testament as a dragon, a dragon standing at the sea. You can see this in Isaiah 51. You can see it in Psalm 74. And again, to the churches in Asia Minor, to people in the pews sitting in the, on the ground hearing this, this language means that Rome's tolerance of Christianity is about to end. That the dragon is going to come looking for you. That Rome is turning into a new oppressive pharaoh that will hunt down the church. That's what John is telling these Christians in 95 AD or so. In verse 14, we're told that the hunted woman was given the the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness or in the desert. At the Exodus, God said to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. This is a picture of divine love and divine deliverance and divine protection and power. In particular, it's the image of wilderness shelter. We live in a wilderness. we're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're aliens. We have a, our powers arrayed against us. Sometimes we don't even need demonic powers arrayed against us. We can wreck our lives good enough on our own. Thank you. We have internal enemies, which are legion. We have external enemies. God says to the people in the wilderness, the people of pilgrimage, that he comes down to you like a great eagle. And he shelters you and he bears you up and he brings you to himself. It's a wonderful picture of God's care for his people. It's rooted in Deuteronomy 32. Moses summarizes there a very important passage, God's care for the wilderness generation. He says this, speaking of Israel, He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, That flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. That's God's promise to you as the people of God in the desert, in the wilderness. He encircles. He cares. He keeps his eye. He bears you up. Particularly the promise here is corporate. It belongs to the whole church. These two wings are given to the woman so that she might fly to safety. It evokes the great words of Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 40, where he says, they'll mount up with wings like eagles. And they'll run and not be weary and walk and not faint. So John is saying that the church, protected, the church lifted up in Christ, flies from the serpent. The one who is called the deceiver of the world. This deception's already been unleashed on the church. Think about what we've seen already about the, what's happening on the ground in the churches of Asia Minor. Internal to these churches, there were movements called the Nicolaitans and Jezebel to subvert the church from within, there were informing Jews who informed on the Christians to the empire, who John calls the synagogue of Satan. There were forces of the imperial cult and the local trade guilds and pagan religions already unleashed. I read last week Pliny the Younger's elder to the emperor Trajan. Right Within 15 years of the date of this letter, the empire is rounding up Christians and executing them. So, the church is fleeing into the wilderness to the place where the text says she's nourished and cared for for a time, times, and half a time. We covered this time period many times in this series. I'm going to briefly summarize it. The wilderness here is the place of the church's historical pilgrimage Toward the promised new heavens and new earth. It describes the whole time of her historical existence. A simple way to think of it is this way. Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage. They went through the wilderness. They came into Canaan in the promised land. The church is delivered from the bondage of sin, travels through the wilderness of life, and enters into the new heavens and new earth. Wilderness is a fundamental metaphor. This is why the New Testament calls us pilgrims, strangers, aliens. First Peter says that you are of the dispersion, meaning you're, you're cast away from your homeland. Until the new heavens and the new earth descend, you are without a homeland. Here we have no lasting city. The wilderness metaphor is, is used in Hebrews 3 and 4 to describe the new covenant community as the people for whom there remains yet a Sabbath rest. So this is the period then of the church's whole life. It's the period that the eagle hovers over us. God hovers over us and protects us. It's the period of his care for us. It's the period of the accuser's attacks. It's the the period of the church facing ferocity. An intense opposition from bestial empires and powers. That's the wilderness. The second point here is the flood. It's always good to know where you are. There's a kind of geography in the book of Revelation. Right? You're in the wilderness. Second point is the flood. Look at verse 15. The serpent poured or spewed water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a torrent or a flood. Again, this is is drawn from the Exodus. The river and the flood recall the threat of the Red Sea as Pharaoh the great dragon pursued the woman in his attempt to drown or exterminate her. So there's this wilderness imagery, but there's this threat of a dragon pouring water out, seeking to flood the woman. There's a later Egyptian pharaoh depicted as a great dragon in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel uses this language. He says, behold, I am against you, pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great dragon that lies in the midst of his waters. That's what, John may be using that very passage here. That says, the Nile is my own. I have made it for myself. So the assaults, if you read the Psalms, you'll see this. The assaults. On the people of God by her enemies throughout the Old Testament are depicted in watery, flood like terms. See this particularly in the Psalms, but also in Isaiah. God's deliverance is like his drying up of the seas and the rivers for his people to pass through. You all know the famous passage from Isaiah when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Right? It's not a story about fishing. Or swimming. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. David speaks of his repeated escapes from the hand of Saul and other enemies in Psalm 18. And he says, the Lord drew me out of many waters. Now, I think we'd be a little more specific about this demonic threat. The fact that there are raging waters proceeding from the mouth, notice that of the serpent, the mouth, indicates that this flood is a flood of lies and deceit. You live not only in the wilderness, that should be a basic metaphor, right? You live in, in a time which is marked by propaganda. A flood of lies and deceit, false teaching and seduction. So the mouth of the serpent pours forth water. And it contrasts with what mouth? The mouth of Christ, out of which comes a two-edged sword for true and just judgments. There are two kinds of witnesses. Faithful witnesses, lying witnesses. The faithful witness of Christ is answered, countered in this book, by the lying witness of this disbarred accuser and all of his minions. So in verse 16, the earth helped the woman, opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. The earth stands in here as an instrument of God's hands. In other words, he uses the very order of things to save his people. At the Red Sea, you get this language, the earth swallowed them up. The point here is that in spite of all threats, again, in spite of the church's harrowing century her current worldwide persecution her virtual decimation in Syria and Iraq her internal problems God saves his people from external pharaohs and internal threats the church in the wilderness shall never perish As the hymn puts it, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, to cherish, like a hovering eagle over you, is with her till the end. So that's the flood. The third point is the offspring. So, having been thwarted in his attempt to destroy the church, the dragon in verse 17 becomes even further enraged, furious with the woman. And the text says, he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And the question here is, who are the rest of her offspring, and how are they different from the woman herself? This basic picture here, I think if we're sensitive to to the Bible's imagery, is not really problematic. The woman and her offspring are both the church. Um. This is a little difficult to get at first, but Israel is is depicted often in the Old Testament as both a woman and a woman with offspring. One way this is repeatedly seen is Israel is spoken of as Zion, and then she's spoken of as the daughter of Zion. She's both mother and daughter. The church, Paul tells us, is our mother, and yet the apostle speaks of his own ministry as begetting children, Christ, So the church is both mother and children. But you might ask, well, why is John distinguishing between the serpent's war on the woman, the serpent is warring against the woman, and the war on the rest of her offspring? What does that mean? This is almost certainly the same distinction we've seen throughout the book. The church as one, the church as woman, is inviolable, protected, The church, as many, is vulnerable to the continuing warfare of the beast. The church in her heavenly existence is sealed and protected. The church in her outward estate is trampled. We've seen that repeatedly in the book. And one reason to to, to suspect that that's what John is saying here is that the woman escapes the dragon in this text. But what happens next in chapter 13 is that the beast arises wages war, and kills the saints. So again, it's a particular image that's important. The church in her existence on earth suffers, sometimes greatly. She is and has been killed in great numbers. There's probably more martyrs in the 20th century than there have been in any other century. This is one of the most unreported stories of our age. The worldwide persecution and near genocide of Christians around the world. Again, I've I've said it before, but if you have not read the work of Nina Shea on this, you should read her work on it. Yet the church, the woman, in her heavenly existence is protected. She conquers by being conquered. Finally, let's notice the nature of the ones, the people, the dragon makes war on. The text says they are those who keep the commandments of God. Isn't that amazing? Who who is it that the dragon is making war on? Well, the church, the woman. Well, how would we describe the church? Well, they're those who keep the commandments of God. There's a strange notion that some people have that Christians don't have to keep the commandments. This is a demonic notion. Faithful witnesses uphold the law of God. And that's how they draw the ire of Satan. Lawless Christianity is an oxymoron. It's not a threat to the dragon. It's often an instrument of the dragon. To keep the commandments. That's going to put you in a place of enmity and hostility with the broader culture. So there's a sense in which we remain bound to the law, but now this is very important. Not as a covenant of works, not in this sense, not in the sense of do this and you shall live. Don't do this and you shall die. That's not how we relate to the law. We are in the gospel. We are under the grace of God. We are freely justified. But we do have the law of Christ, the law written on our hearts. And the law now functions as a rule or a guide for our gratitude. We are empowered by the Spirit to obey the law. We don't obey the law to accomplish our own righteousness or establish our own goodness, but we do obey the law as those whose transgressions of the law have been pardoned in Christ. And this can be, admittedly, a difficult dynamic to keep straight. And if we don't keep this straight, we can end up being self-righteous or pompous, or we can end up despairing. If if you're pretty good at keeping the commandments, you can be self-righteous and pompous about it. If you're not very good at it at all, you can be despairing. The gospel cuts another way through this and says, nobody's any good at it. You're all condemned by it. Christ bore the punishment and, and, and bore your sins. He kept the law in your place. Now, by Christ's spirit, you should, as an act of gratitude and thanksgiving, keep the commandments of God. And when you do that, the beast and his minions will push back. They'll push back. So, the faithful, they not only keep the commandments of God. Notice the text says they hold on to the testimony or the witness of Jesus. So they keep the commandments of God, but they bear witness to the world. They tell the world the good news. It's good news they often don't want to hear, but it is good news. They bear witness. So this combination here, notice the combination. Commandments, testimony, and Jesus. It evokes the ark presence of God which guided Israel in the wilderness. The ark housed the Ten Commandments, which were called the testimony. And on top of the testimony was the mercy seat where the blood of atoning sacrifice was applied. And as the body of Christ, you are the New Testament tabernacle. You have the law placed in your hearts. We stand under the mercy seat, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That's the only place from which people can try and keep the commandments of God. So, I'm going to conclude. This text, and we've seen this before, In many ways, these passages don't teach anything that you find in other places in the New Testament. They just do it with apocalyptic language, with with, with more symbolic language. This text could be called an apocalyptic presentation of the great promise of Matthew 16. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is a wilderness community. She's a woman in the wilderness, the dragon and his bestial forces are going to come after her and they're going, to, they're going to kill the saints. But the saints are going to prevail because they are in communion with God and Christ. So again, John is trying to brace us. He's trying to brace you. He's trying to correct the kind of dullness that seeps into us as we go through life and say, no, no, you need to breathe a little clean, fresh mountain air. You need to see the situation Cosmically, the way John sees it. And that it matters, for, it does, it matters for our lives. So, there are these forces arrayed against us, but John is not one to despair. This is not a despairing book at all. It's a very hopeful book revelation. And our confidence is this, and John always gives us this confidence clearly in the text. It's that the male child has been caught up to the throne of God. That he's escaped the one who sought to devour him. And if you didn't devour the head, you're not going to devour the body. And the victory, the ascended victory of the heads is your ascended victory. This is why the New Testament constantly says you are in Christ. In other words, your life takes place in the sphere, in the place, in the realm that Christ is. And if you are in Christ... Then you have died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've ascended with Christ. And you're seated with Christ. Even if you're martyred, John says. And so thus his conquest and his victory are yours. And so Paul says in Romans 16, speaking to the church, the God of peace, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. And in the interim, in the wilderness, you're safe under the wings of the great eagle who encircles you, who keeps his eye on you, who covers you with his pinions, who draws you to himself. And that great eagle does that by keeping you in the tabernacle that is the body of Christ. Amen.